Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. Well, as we know, work and how we work is changing very rapidly. It's hard for people to accept how radically different things are now as compared to how they've traditionally been. And if we look at the future, it is, I don't want to say scary, but it's certainly dazzling to think about how different things may be. As we move ahead, even five or 10 years, we're going to have to have different words to describe work and jobs and employment because they won't mean exactly the same things we've been used to. Today to talk about all of that, I'm joined by an expert on the way that jobs are changing. His name is Ravan Jesuthasen. He's the co-author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Work Without Jobs. That's a book that basically proposes a radically new way of looking at work. It makes the argument that the systems we have now around work are outdated and that we need to think in terms of a new work operating system that deconstructs jobs into their component parts and then reconstructs them in a way that reflects the skills and the abilities of individual workers. It's kind of different than what we have right now. I had a great discussion with him. We covered all of that. We covered, you know, what might be in demand in the future, how we have to think about reskilling, whether the credentials we've gotten used to are going to really mean anything much at all. It was really eye-opening. I mean, some of these things I'm very familiar with, but just envisioning how it might look in a few years and how people are going to have to adapt is really interesting. It's really a fascinating thing to do. So I had a great discussion with them. Please stay with us to hear it. Is it time to deconstruct jobs and how do we do that? My guest today is Ravan J. Suthasan. He's co-author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Work Without Jobs, and he joins me now to discuss that. Ravan, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Linda. Good to join you. You know, I have a lot of questions about the book and your work. Um, I always like to ask people about their backgrounds a little bit, too, and how you ended up looking at the future of work. Yeah, no, I'm happy to share that. So I think of myself as kind of a retreaded finance guy. I'm a chartered financial analyst by training. Um, you know, my bachelor's and master's were all in finance. And I used to be a strategy consultant, but I found my way into, you know, the world of human capital and work. And um, so over the course of the last 30 years, I've had the privilege of just, um, you know, of frankly, not having a real job because I've been a consultant for 30 years and have had the privilege of working with um, organizations of all sizes around the world. And I first started um, dabbling in, quote unquote, the future of work before it was called the future of work it was back in 2007 and started to do a fair bit of research in the space. Um, as you know, have since written four books uh, on the topic. And I also um, sit on the World Economic Forum Steering Committee on Work and Employment and have uh, had the chance to work with them on about uh, 12 different research studies um, over the last, um, you know, eight years or so on the future of work. Interesting. You know, we, we're talking about the future of work, but we should go over the history of this too. I don't think people understand that some of the concepts around jobs really are things that came about with the second industrial revolution. We talk about some of that. Yeah, and they're absolutely right. You know, um, we, we almost, we think and we act as if this thing, the way we work, the way we've worked for the better part of the last 140 years has been how work has always been done. And, and as you well know, it's it's actually a relatively recent phenomenon. 
um, you know, prior to work being organized into jobs, jobs into job families, those job families into functions and organizations, we had very much a distributed ecosystem for work. Um, people were often defined by the skills they had and that, those skills directly connected to the work they might do. And um, you didn't really have the construct of the organization that we have um, as we know it today. And then in the second industrial revolution, all of those disparate activities got aggregated into jobs. Um, those jobs became the basis for much of how we live our lives. Um, and, you know, it's, I, on, a, on a related note, I find it interesting that so many find the notion of a four-day week so hard to, to contemplate, you know, because it's not. it wasn't long ago that we weren't even working five days. We were working six days a week. And prior to that, seven days a week. Um, so this many of the constructs that we know around work, you know, really are about 140 years old, whether that is where work, work is done, how long it's done for, how it's done, et cetera. And, and that's really why John and I wrote this book, because what we were starting to see was this, this construct um, known as a job, increasingly becoming kind of unfit for purpose, given the velocity of change in the world we're in, as well as the volatility of, of the global economy. So needing something much more agile to be able to respond to and hence our new work operating system, as we call it. You know, there's so many parts to this, but I know people get scared anytime you even bring up the idea that jobs are going away. Uh, I've talked a lot about the gig economy, I've been guests on this, and there's problems to go with that. You can't get a bank loan, you can't rely on, you know, the money coming in, you need a basic income. So there's a lot to unravel here. Do you think people are willing to hear the idea that jobs may not be forever? Yeah, you know, I, so I, I, I will draw the distinction between jobs and employment. Because I think this thing called employment is going to be with us and be the dominant construct for work for a long time. But as we're seeing with many organizations, this thing called a job um, is increasingly less synonymous with employment. And when I work with my clients, I often ask them to envision three ways of connecting people to work. One might be, you know, an employee in a fixed job. And that's going to you know, that percentage of work being done in these fixed jobs has shrunk dramatically over the course of the last uh, 20 years or so. But there's still good reasons for that because of compliance and control reasons, if you're in financial services or healthcare, um, just basic economics. Um, but increasingly, what we're seeing, Linda, in companies are, if that is the fixed model, a much more flexible model where people might be in, in jobs but they have the opportunity to express their skills in other parts of the organization where those skills are demanded and the opportunity to move elsewhere, either within or without the company to acquire new skills. And so that's the flexible part of it. You know, and, and, and the most extreme example is what we think of as flow to work, where people may still be employed, but they are not connecting to work through jobs. They're connecting to work through marketplaces that match their skills to gigs, assignments, and projects, both within the company and conceivably outside the company as well. That's an interesting concept. So if you're an organization who wants to be open to doing this and you have maybe a very fixed workforce, you have people in boxes, what's the first thing you need to do if you want to rethink it? I think, you know, I, I think of three trigger points, Linda. Um, for sort of starting the process of thinking about this new work operating system. You know, one is, are you stretched to find talent? I can't think of a single Everyone company is, today yes. 
right? That that uh, can't find the talent. And one thing that we've seen is organizations who are stretched doing a couple of things. One is asking the question of, instead of me just throwing more money at the supply of talent, so bending the supply curve, you know, with more pay, different benefits, how do I bend the demand curve? How do I redesign the activities and tasks that make up that job so that I can get more people into the job? So how do I design better work instead of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole? Um, so that's one thing that we've seen with organizations. So deconstructing the work, ensuring that the talent you're hiring um, can flow to the top of their license, if you will, doing the things that you really value, while taking out the other aspects of the job so that more people, maybe where there is a more plentiful supply, can come into the game. Um, and we have some great examples, as you probably saw in the book, of different organizations like Providence Health in the United States doing that. Um, another example is where you might have certain skills that are fungible across the organization. Think data scientists, think digital talent, program managers, project managers. We need them all over the company. And so instead of having them be captive in one particular function and then looking to, you know, looking to find talent for similar work in other functions, how about we create a virtual cloud-based organization? and enable that talent to connect to work through projects and assignments and gigs. That's that third model I talked about. So they're still employees. They're just not trapped within a particular job or a part of the organization. I know you've talked about automation in the past. How does that fit within this? I mean, not just having you know jobs, not just using the cloud or whatever else, but coming in with robots and cobots and the mm-hmm. like. Yeah, so automation is absolutely a key part. So in the book, we talk about the four principles that underpin this new work operating system. We've talked about the first one, which is um, uh, starting with the work as opposed to how the work is organized in the jobs. Um, the second is relates to automation. The third relates to once we've gotten the optimal combination of humans and machines, how do you best connect people to work? And that's where those three models that I talked about might come into play. And then the fourth is, how do we create the capacity to perpetually reinvent work? On automation, um, and this we cover in chapter two of the book, it's also the the focus of our third book together called Reinventing Jobs that was published by the Harvard Business Review. Um, What we've seen is companies that lead with the work, as opposed to the ones who lead with the technology, actually get to much better outcomes. They see the nuances where highly repetitive rules-based work can be substituted by automation. They see the opportunities where truly human skills, creativity, critical thinking, empathy, care and concern, innovation can be augmented by automation, making that human almost super productive. And they also see where um, the presence of automation can create space for new, um, new types of human work or the development of new skills. And, um, you know, one example of an organization that I think your listeners might uh, appreciate hearing about is a company called Aquant. Um, so Aquant is in the is a technology company that operates in the service industry field. So think of field service repairmen who might come fix your refrigerator, et cetera. So given the labor shortages that we talked about, given maybe the lack of interest from the younger generation in being a field technician repairing refrigerators, going from home to home, et cetera. What a quant has done is, is really interesting. They've kind of democratized the knowledge that used to be embedded in those who had done the work for decades. Um, you know, 
expert technicians who could diagnose a problem really quickly. So with their algorithms and their AI, they actually enable a lot more people of you know, lower skill levels to be able to operate like these top techs because the algorithm is, is diagnosing the problem and then guiding them in their work to repair it. Think of it as, you know, if you think of what Uber has done to taxis in, in, in the good old days in, in England, as you know, to be a taxi driver took years of study and practice. And overnight, Uber democratized that work by putting the power of a cell phone and Google Maps in everyone's hands so that they could actually do the work. You know what? I have some empathy for those guys because they're still there driving those cabs and they put all that time in. You're going to get pushback. Obviously, they've had pushback in London and everywhere else because of Uber. We're still really early in the cobot era. What kind of reactions are we seeing? So I, I think, you know, we're seeing kind of a mixed reaction. I think that I would separate the problem into two parts. One is where does the automation make the, super, the human super productive? The second is, how do we handle that democratization, right? So now that we've brought more people into the game, are we treating them as equitably as we did the talent that came before? And I think that's where society probably has a fair bit of work to do, because as we democratize, I think there is a very human, maybe a capitalistic tendency to try and reduce the cost of work and try and create and you know, essentially shift the value from the providers of labor to the providers of capital. And I think that's where we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't want to say it's going to be a battle, but I think people have strong feelings about this. So Indeed. I wonder how you think the next five years or 10 years are going to go between you know, organizations trying to restructure, reskill maybe, bring in a lot of technology, rethink jobs. Yeah, what kind of, what, what's it going to look like? Yeah, you know, and and one that's really at the heart of one of the why we wrote the book, Linda, because what we were starting to see was companies, because of the need for agility, because of the need for speed, the need to respond, you know, to a very volatile world that we live in. You know, we, arguably we've had four black swan events in the last twenty years, um, needing that agility, but it was often coming at the expense of the workforce. And so how do we create a much more human way of working where there is more power vested in the talent um, with the capacity to keep reinventing themselves in order to be able to sort of continue to stay relevant um, for the world that we operate in? And at the same time, ensuring that the traditional markers of success, you know, degrees were meant to democratize access to opportunity. And I think we'll all agree that they've done anything but that over the course of the last 100 years. And if we look at large swaths of the population that are excluded from work because they don't have that single piece of paper that purports to tell an employer what skills they have. So as we move to this more skill-based architecture, I think we have an opportunity to turn democratization on its head to give a lot more people access to opportunity. The question is, will that access, you know, result in, in you know, maybe a lowering of the wage premiums that we've seen or can a rising tide lift all boats? I, I hope it's the latter. You know, that's a scary concept for some people too, because it was supposed to be, you went to that Ivy League university and you were set for life, right? Now you're talking about reskilling. You're talking about people who don't have that degree having an equal shot if they have the right skills-based training. It's kind of revolutionary. Oh, absolutely, Linda. And, and you know, I, it's, I said in a, in a speech to the uh, CPA Association a, a number of years ago, that you know, 
we're going to see more change in the accounting profession in the next five years than we've seen in the last 500 when the double entry bookkeeping system first came about. And in large part, because what was a quote unquote safe profession, you know, you got your accounting degree, became a CPA, you were guaranteed you were relevant for the length of whatever career you wanted, 30, 40, 50 years. But that's no longer the case because the shelf life of those technical skills has shrunk so dramatically. Best you get now is maybe seven years before you need to reskill and retool. And it makes, particularly in the United States, the that, val- that proposition of paying several hundred thousand dollars for a degree makes it a highly questionable proposition because if you don't have the shelf life, is it really worth the investment? So if we go ahead 10 years, how different does this world look? I think what we're going to see is a, a couple of things. One is significant premiums and value placed on reskilling and upskilling of the global workforce. I think we're going to see more and more organizations, and I think this will be important, designing space for both learning as well as well-being into the flow of work. I think we, I hope we will get past this ridiculous conversation about work-life balance and realize that we have to be absolutely intentional about work to ensure that the workforce has this space. I had a senior executive say to me um, in, in a meeting, in a board meeting, you know, I'm paid for my perspective. I don't have the time to provide that perspective because I'm transacting continuously. And I think if someone at, at, in the C-suite feels that way, how much more the rest of the workforce? And I do think, you know, I, I love this quote, Linda. Um, it was Alvin Toffler in 1970 who said, the illiterate of the 21st century won't be those who can't read and write. It'll be those who can't learn, unlearn, and relearn. And I think back in 1970, he absolutely nailed what we're going to see over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I agree with you. It'll be an exciting time. Robin, thank you so much for talking to me today. My pleasure, Linda. Robin Jesuthason is the co-author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Work Without Jobs. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to know more about Robin and his work, please take a look at our show notes. You'll find some links there. If you'd like to connect with me, I'm on Twitter and at Relentless Eco. Now, if you did enjoy this discussion about the future of work, please take a moment and leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And please subscribe to this podcast. If you do those things, people will be more likely to find us and we can keep these discussions going. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.